Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. It's Kevin Canary, and today I am joined by my friends and colleagues, Ravi Ambani and Andrew Wishy. We're here to share some exciting news about a new book we wrote that you're going to want to get your hands on. Last year, the three of us met to prepare for the certifying exam in vascular surgery. To our surprise, the biggest struggle wasn't finding the time to study together or the fact that we were using virtual platforms. It was a lack of a single, high-quality, accurate, and affordable resource to help us dominate the oral boards. We searched everywhere and came up empty-handed. Then we had an idea. If we couldn't find what we were looking for, why not create it ourselves? So we did just that used it to pass our oral boards, and now we want to share it with you. The Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review has 60 of the highest yield scenarios in an easy-to-read question-and-answer format that highlights the most important clinical concepts, concise procedural descriptions, and common surgical complications that everyone should know about the field of vascular surgery. This book is intended for all audiences, including surgical trainees, practicing surgeons, interested medical students, or anyone who wants to have a collection of the most common vignettes in our specialty. Get ready for the book to drop on Amazon and the Behind the Knife premium page on March 1st. Until then, dominate the day. All right. Hello once again to our Behind the Knife listeners. Uh, We're excited to be back with you for our third episode coming from the Leahy colorectal team. Uh, Just to recap, our first episode dealt with clinical challenges of advanced colorectal polyps. Our second episode was a journal club discussing the use of total neoadjuvant therapy to treat locally advanced rectal cancer. In this episode, we're going to revisit clinical challenges in surgery and talk about the wide world of rectal prolapse. I'm honored to be joined once again by Dr. Peter West, Marcello, and Dr. Tess Hannah Alette. Team, do you want to say hi? Hey, team. How are you guys doing? Hey, Tess, great to see you again. How's it going in Worcester? Good. It's, everything's going really well. I'm happy to be back at Leahy. Excited for the episode. Nice. And uh, I'll just mention that we do have a special guest that's going to be joining us later in the episode. Uh, so let's get on with our get on with the show. Well, hey, hey, hold on, uh, Cowboy John. You know, can we just talk to the listeners and let them know a little about 30 seconds and talk about our New England winter tests? Um, how old is Sam and what have you done for fun this winter? Sam's 23 months, and we actually just got back from a ski vacation in Vermont. We went to Smuggler's Notch, and we got him on some skis. So you can see here in the in the photo, me taking him down the bunny hill. It was it was a basically two minute long wall sit squat for me. Uh, So good workout. (laughs) It's a good workout within when they're young. They get better when they get older. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, John, what, what about you and Sarah and Cole? Who's is he also like 22 months now? Yeah, 22 months. Uh, we've been doing great. I have been asking what is the appropriate age to take someone skiing. So now that I know that I can take him skiing, I'll, I'll book something next go. week. Uh, but yeah, we made a, um, an igloo a couple of weeks ago and uh, took a really cool picture of us in the igloo with our, uh, our dog in the foreground who looks like a beast. Uh, <laughs> so it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right, gang, I don't think we have any other announcements, so let's get going for our case, and we've got a good one, always. Uh, Tess, you ready to do this? Always. All right, great. So we have a 23-year-old female you're seeing in the office. 
Uh, she has one year of complaints of rectal prolapse, history of constipation, and she notes some mucus drainage in between bowel movements. She's never had a colonoscopy. Uh, she did take a few photos of the prolapse, and you look at these, and it looks like it's mainly mucosal in nature and extends downward maybe about two to three centimeters. So what are you going to do to evaluate her in the clinic, and what are some of your initial considerations? Sure. I would start by performing a full anorectal exam, assessing for spontaneous prolapse of any tissue and any evidence of a patulous anus. I'd want to do a digital rectal exam to assess the tone, do anoscopy to confirm that there are no masses serving as any pathologic lead point. I'd also assess her baseline sphincter tone, her squeeze, do a dynamic exam. I would ask her to bear down to evaluate for any perineal descent and try to reproduce any prolapse. Uh, I'd also then sit her on the toilet and ask her to bear down. That's perfect, Tess. But most importantly, what are you going to do before you have her sit on the toilet? Well, I've, I've learned from the best that I have to empty my white coat pockets. Yeah, it's the white coat debulking trick. You know, you, you, you don't want to have your phone or your papers fall out of your upper pocket into the toilet. It is not a good look. And I actually like to start the exam on the toilet. Um, so I, I think it's important because then you really get to see them before you put them in prone jackknife. It lets you see how far down the prolapse comes. It gives you a sense of things. And I think that's for me, it's just a little pearl. Examine them on the toilet first. Nice. Well, thankfully, I can say that so far uh, that hasn't happened to me that my uh, contents have fallen into the toilet. Uh, so uh, you do the exam, the prone position, you find a normal appearing anus. A digital rectal exam shows normal resting tone with slightly diminished squeeze pressure of the sphincter complex. You do a rigid anoscopy and that confirms engorged distal rectal mucosa and some minor engorgement of the internal hemorrhoids. Uh, and so then with bearing down on the toilet, uh, you see this picture. And so I'll just use this as a little reminder for our audio listeners. Consider following along with us on the Behind the Knife YouTube channel so you can see the images we're referring to. Uh, so Tess, can you describe what you're seeing for those listeners who are not seeing those beautiful pictures? Sure. There's a pretty significant effacement of the hemorrhoidal complex with engorgement. There's also mucosal prolapse of the rectum that extends about two to three centimeters. It's not a classic beehive uh, with a full rectal thickness prolapse. You would see circular folds of mucosa below the anal verge. Sitting on the toilet can be really important in helping to differentiate and elicit this physical exam finding, as we've already discussed. It's not uncommon that patients with significant hemorrhoidal disease can be confused with rectal prolapse. Again, if you're tuning in via YouTube, we have a good picture showing the difference between the two where you can appreciate the circumferential mucosal folds of prolapse compared to the columns in hemorrhoidal disease. Great. Yeah, exactly. So what's your diagnosis uh, and what are you going to tell her in clinic about treatment options? Well, at this point, she has a short segment mucosal prolapse, not a full thickness rectal prolapse. In Again, general, just how, how long do you think that is? Two or three centimeters? Uh, yeah, two to three centimeters. Okay, good. This just, just to define short, like to, so those aren't watching, it's yeah, like two or three centimeters at most. Go ahead. So she has a short segment mucosal prolapse. In general, I would talk to her about a variety of surgical treatment options, including both a perineal and abdominal approach. 
for perineal procedures, I discuss uh, rectosigmoidectomy or Altmeyer procedure, and then the Delorme. For the abdominal approach, I would talk. I would talk to her about the role of open versus minimally invasive, mesh, no mesh, anterior repair versus posterior, and the role of sigmoid resection at the time of surgery. Yeah, I think that's kind of a nice way to categorize it into the different options. You know, um, abdominal and perineal. Um, and you could think about uh, doing something for this short segment of mucosal prolapse. Tess, what, what do you think about that? I think in her case, I would choose a Delorme. Right. And, and I think that's good. And, and uh, John, would you consider a perineal rectosigmoidectomy for this mucosal prolapse? No. Right. Why, why not? What, you know, people may be saying, well, I hear a lot about Altmeyer's. Why not an Altmeyer here? Yeah. And I think, you know, we'll talk about all the different approaches and sort of when you want to use each one. And, um, you know, we'll get into that potentially in a little more detail later, but, you know, for me, for someone who's otherwise young and healthy and can tolerate a surgery, if we're going to be doing a definitive repair for, I would say a longer segment of rectal prolapse, uh, I'm doing an abdominal approach and not a perineal, um, approach. And I, and I agree. And I think the other point here is that to do a perineal rectosigmoidectomy, you have to get full thickness. And here you really have mucosal disease. And so you can get yourself into a problem if you're trying to get full thickness and it really isn't full thickness, but it's more mucosal. So Tess, you're a rock star for saying Delorme. So that's it. What are you going to tell her for a long-term risk of recurrence? Probably around 25%. Yeah. And I think that's about right. Um, And so maybe from a historical standpoint, we should talk about the evolution of procedures for prolapse and uh, for those watching YouTube, you can, get, can see the diagrams. Oldest procedure um, was a, uh, Dr. Tiersch from Germany, 1891, an anal encirclement. Basically, you just take um, um, material, pass it around the anus and tie it tight to keep the prolapse up inside. I actually saw one of these with proline uh, here done by Weidenheimer in the old days. You won't see it anymore. Um and then uh, following that, we have a Delorme procedure, uh, which is basically um, a mucosal proctectomy. Basically, this t- taking out a sleeve of the mucosa, placating the muscle, and then performing an anastomosis. Um, next, it would be from a perineal approach, uh, would be the perineal rectal sigmoidectomy or Altmeyer procedure, which is a full thickness excision of the rectal wall. Uh, and mucosa, and then performing basically a uh, rectoanal or coloanal full thickness anastomosis uh, there. And those are probably the three main uh, procedures. From an abdominal approach, the simplest procedure would be to do a mobilization alone, but we don't do that anymore. Um, And mobilization itself was done, but we're carrying this with sutures, uh, suture rectopexy was done. And I got to say that early on, it was done, but not thought to be a good operation. Uh, if you're going to put it, if you're going to mobilize posteriorly, you should put something in. So then people started doing um, mesh rectopexies and using a variety of types. The image here is showing a classic um, Ripstein mesh rectopexy, which was wrapping mesh around the front of the rectum and suturing it to the um, to the sacrum. Tess, what do you think might be a problem from that if you do that? Any thoughts? Well, you always worry about mesh erosion or um, potential alteration in bowel function in terms of constipation or stricture. And think about that mesh wrapping around the whole front of the rectum. Does the rectum have any give there? 
No. So stricturing would be sort of a concern. So then that goes from that anterior approach came to this uh, next procedure, which is a modified Ripstein where the mesh was secured posteriorly and wrapped only about three quarters of the way around to leave the anterior wall free uh, so that you wouldn't develop stricturing. And so this was done and something done here at Leahy for many years. Pat Roberts wrote about our experience here, a very solid operation, very low recurrence rate, and even in the old days, a very low erosion rate. Um, and then following that uh, came the concept of this, which is the sigmoid section combined with suture. Obviously, you wouldn't want to put mesh and an anastomosis together, but suture. The old Frickman Goldberg uh, pre, uh, procedure for Stan Goldberg from University of Minnesota. Um, I'll just make a little comment about Stan Goldberg, phenomenal ambassador for our uh, disease. And when I was Leahy Fellow, he was our Swinton professor and uh, told us a few tri tricks and trips uh, to doing surgery. He described this with Frickman in 1969. And those are basically where we are. And then the more recent operation, John, what is this? Tell us. Ventral mesh rectopexy. All right. So, so what's that concept, John? Yeah. And so, um, you know, and this is one I was fortunately able to see a couple of times in, in, in fellowship, but the concept is you are not doing any posterior dissection. So you're not worried about any of the, you know, hypogastric nerves and you are tacking the rectum with a piece of mesh distally, as well as uh, proximally to the sacral promontory. And I, I think the only thing that really changes, this really changed, is taking all these abdominal surgeries and then performing them either laparoscopically or robotically uh, has what's really been, I think, led to uh, a, a re-inspiration of doing um, abdominal approaches for rectal prolapse. So that kind of rounds out our abdominal and perineal procedures. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's always helpful, obviously, to have someone provide a little bit of the context of how we got to where we are in 2022. You know, I'll just say this can be hard to keep track of as a, as a trainee. And so I think sort of grouping them in the buckets like Tess started off with perineal approaches, abdominal approaches, mesh, no mesh, resection, no resection, you know, open lap robotic are sort of nice ways. And that, that's honestly how I sort of phrase it to patients. Um, you know, in training, I think maybe I saw one DeLorme with Dr. Milsom. Um, Peter, can you just give us some insight about, you know, this procedure that as trainees we hear about and read about, but we rarely see or do? Okay, so, so all I would have you do is think about this as doing a full circumferential uh, mucosectomy going upward. It begins about a centimeter above the dentate. And I learned this actually from James Church at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, where he would do a 20 centimeter mucosal resection. I've limited this operation for those purely with mucosal disease. You use um, saline with epinephrine or marking with epinephrine to dissect. You begin circumferentially. It's a very delicate dissection. The first centimeter or two goes not well because it's bleeding from the hemorrhoidal tissue. Tess is smiling because she mm -hmm. remembers this. And then once it starts to go up, you get this beautiful plane of seeing the muscular layer of the rectal wall and you dissect up until you can't pull it down anymore. Then you have to plicate that muscle layer in four quadrants. So you'll just lay in a stitch in the anterior, posterior, left and right. And you'll, you'll place these sutures in the muscle to plicate the muscle, which elongates the anal canal. And that's where it's thought to maybe provide some benefit for this population, which often has incontinence. And then that application takes the tension off of the mucosal anastomosis down to the low rectum. And those are sort of the elements of a DeLorme procedure. Nice. Uh, and we're doing this prone position. 
right? These are not. I like doing this prone um, because it doesn't bleed quite so much. I get a good pull. And I'll just say, when I do a, a, a Altmeyer, I like doing those in lithotomy <laughs> because I think it's easier getting in the anterior plane first, which you see down on. And so I know others like doing a, 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 a rectosigmoidectomy in prone. I like to flip it once in a while and bury it up. All right. So back to the case. Uh, so we do a DeLorme procedure. And so tests you're seeing are back in the clinic four weeks post-op. Uh, surgery has gone well. And she tells you she's having some mucus drainage with defecation with occasional mucus in between. And she says she can still feel some excess tissue. So you examine her in clinic and perineal inspection shows a normal appearing anus. And with squeeze, there's concentric movement of the perineal skin. So she has a normal anal wink. Uh, and digital examination shows good resting tone, slightly diminished squeeze pressure of the sphincter complex. Uh, no stenosis and rigid endoscopy shows a healed suture line. So you then sit her on the toilet and you see this slide. Uh, another plug to take a look on, uh, on YouTube to see some of these pictures. Um, and so basically this shows mucosa that's collapsing, but it's not quite below the hemorrhoidal tissue. So how are you going to counsel her at this point? I would tell her that there certainly will be some level of effacement of the hemorrhoidal tissue with sitting on the toilet. This could potentially be improved with perineal strengthening exercises, but I wouldn't plan any additional surgery at this time. All right. And Tess, what are you going to tell her to do now in the office to try to help her, you know, improve that uh, anal muscle? Anal winks and gluteal sets. <laughs> yes, right. The good old anal wink, you know, so like it's winking at you. And that helps to work uh, the internal sphincter and you got to hold it for 20 to 30 seconds, right? And then with the test, tell us what's a, what's a gluteal set? Where you're contracting kind of the gluteal muscles and you can actually see I'm doing it right now as is Dr. Marcello. <laughs> Squeeze your butt cheeks, right? Right, spoken like a true Leahy colorectal grad. And yeah, that's right. You got to set the expectations. And how often do they have to do a test? How much, how often are they squeezing? How many a day? Uh, they're doing it um, at least 10 times a day. Yeah, I ask you say six tests of 10, 60 squeezes every day. And you mark your calendar with strikes or spares if you're, if you're doing enough. If you only do 30, it's a spare. If you do 60, it's a strike. So nobody needs to know the code. In a wink and gluteal set. I love it. I love it. What can I say? I love it. Uh, and so it's good for the colorectal surgeon to know these things, right? So, you know, it's easy to put in that order of pelvic floor physical therapy, but, you know, patients, especially during COVID are, may not be able to see these dedicated pelvic floor physical therapists. And so I think to be able to sort of talk the talk with your patients and really engage them to me, I, I think is a must. So, um, and I, I'll just point out for our non-colorectal surgery community out there. Yes, I said pelvic floor physical therapists who specialize in the pelvic floor. Uh, I was fortunate to spend some time shadowing with them during fellowship and, and they really are truly amazing what they do. Uh, okay, so and back I, to, the, go ahead. And I'll just finally say that I think uh, the photograph you see, usually you won't see that much if you've taken out enough of the rectal lining. So um, I think it's a good operation to do for a short prolapse. Uh, and I think, I still think there's a value of it. Um, and so Tess, what if this fails? Are, are you available to have any and every option available? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's another beauty of it, right? That you, you haven't burned any bridge anywhere by doing this procedure. Go ahead, John. Yeah. And so I'll just say, you know, piggyback that. So, you know, especially for, um, you know, colorectal surgery trainees, this is going to be a, a common sort of scenario that you're going to be asked is, 
you know, what procedures can you do after a prior repair? And so that there's really some must knows with that. And so it really comes down to if you're doing any type of resection, whether that's an Altmeyer or a sigmoid resection, you need to be very careful about what your subsequent repair is due to concern for ischemia to your anastomosis. All right, so let's get back to the case. And so uh, obviously we only picked the best cases for behind the knife, so the case doesn't stop there. So Tess, she's coming back to see you six months later. Uh, and she says that over the past couple of months, she's noticed some more. Let's make it two years, two years later. Two years, perfect. Two years. did an awesome job. She got two years. <laughs> so she notices some more prolapse that extends further down, uh, two episodes of incontinence. She has some urgency now. Uh, she has been doing the perineal strengthening exercises, strikes every single day, uh, bowel <laughs> movements on a regular basis. And now when you ask her to sit on the toilet, you see this. And so Tess, can you tell our uh, lucky listeners what they're looking at now? I see a recurrent prolapse and now it is full thickness. All right. So let's just catch up our, our listeners. Okay. So how we have far a- down does it come test? Tell, tell, how far down is this? At least five, five to seven centimeters. Got it. Yeah, that's right. So 23 year old female, she had a history of constipation with short segment, two to three centimeter mucosal prolapse. She underwent a DeLorme procedure. And unfortunately now two years later has a full thickness rectal prolapse. So Tess, what are we going to do to help this young woman? So like we said, because we did the DeLorme to start, we haven't burned any bridges. She could undergo a repeat DeLorme, but since she's already failed that and now it's worse, it's now full thickness, I would reserve doing an Altmeyer for a medically unfit patient. So I would recommend doing a trans uh, abdominal approach. I would prefer to reserve using mesh for failures. So I would start with a suture, a laparoscopic suture rectopexy. Nice. Peter, what do you think? Yeah. And I, I, and I think what is most interesting in my career, this changed, you know, we, we, before minimum invasive surgery, you know, the, the perineal rectosuchomedectomy was done routinely in Altmeyer, even in young women who were healthy. And, but then we really realized the value of the rectum and how, how important it is with the communication with the anus. Um, I, I, I think we really have shied away uh, from that in a younger population. At least that's our hope as colorectal surgeons. And I would say the important part is that the prolapse is a symptom and is not the disease in its isolation. So we're treating the symptom, not the disease. The disease is the underlying constipation that drives them to sit there, to push and to strain. And, and you can fix the prolapse, but it may not improve their constipation. So in many cases, uh, you have to be worried, will you make the constipation worse? And rectopexy has a billet of saying that it'll make it worse. Um, you got to tailor the procedure to the patient and the anal sphincter, right? Tess? Um, is there any specific regimen that you have patients follow after surgery in terms of medications? What do you tell them for post-opic instructions after prolapse? And I'll throw in there physical, physical exertion. You know, are you having them on bed rest for six weeks? Yeah, not really. But I think, you know, um, I, I'm telling them to be careful a little bit. I want to, I prep them out so they don't have to worry about it. I want them to use something to keep the stool soft. And I'll probably have already worked in that beforehand. And, and, and that's where I started thinking about different things. Um, and so I think keeping uh, you Metamucil, I think is great because it, it has the benefit if they're really loose, it'll firm it up if it's hard and makes it softer, but they may need a stimulant with it. And then mixing together medications to try to help with that. Um, 
Tess, if we're going to think now about doing an abdominal operation for rectal prolapse, there are typically some sort of classic findings in the pelvis of a patient with prolapse. And, and um, what are those findings and who was responsible for, for those? Because I think the listeners should know. Yeah. Uh, Moskowitz described basically three different abnormalities of the pelvic floor that you'll see in cases of rectal prolapse. One of those being an abnormal deep cul-de-sac of Douglas. Then the second finding that you should expect to see is the rectum must have weak and elongated suspensory ligaments in the pelvis. And then the third is a mobile redundant sigmoid with a long mesentery. So yeah, so uh, so a, a, a deep uh, pelvic floor, a deep uh, pouch of Douglas, laxation of the rectum to the uh, sacrum, and a redundant sigmoid, and it's pretty much classic. You find it. Tess, is this a new concept? When did Moskowitz describe this? In 1912. Yeah, awesome. So like, this is not new. This is old, and I think it's important that when you do these cases to look for those findings, and and it's just amazing to see. Yes, I, I'll jump in. I heard you say laparoscopic suture rectopexy. So what about Doc and the robot? I know you did a few of those with Dr. Sriderides and Dr. Kleiman. What are your thoughts about robotic rectopexy? Yeah, John, you know, so I'm going to kind of make sure that um, we think now about how we address the use of robotics uh, platform. Um, so can we unveil our special guest? We asked Dave to join us. Uh, and I'll take a minute to introduce Dave. Dave, join us. At Leahy 2017, after completing his fellowship at uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital and Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, and he completed his general circle training at uh, Cornell uh, and was a ministry uh, chief resident to John. So, uh, yeah, do I get that right, Dave? And John? Yeah, you got it. That's I'm, I've been um, doing my best to follow Dave and whatever he does, which is part of the reason why I'm here. So, uh, yeah, he was my admin. And I got to tell you, it's okay having two Cornell grads here, uh, you know, at, at Leahy. And Dave's done been a rock star, really, since uh, he joined us. He's the clinical director of the Colorectal um, MDT board. He's a program director uh, of our initiative to participate in the National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cran uh, Cancer Initiatives. And he's also our director of uh, robotic surgery for the division. Uh, Dave, welcome to uh, Behind the Knife. Thanks so much, Peter. John, Tess, thanks so much for inviting me to be here. It's a real pleasure to join this group. Um, so, you know, I'll share a couple of my thoughts on the, on the use of the robot for rectal prolapse. First, I think it's always important to, um, to begin by emphasizing that the robot is just an instrument like anything else that you might use during surgery. It will not ever replace good sound surgical judgment or technique. And I think from what we have seen uh, in the discussion that's led up to this point, there is a lot that goes into the initial evaluation, the patient selection, and the counseling that goes into a patient with rectal prolapse. So there is a lot that you need to go through before you get to the point of picking robot or lap or open for your rectopexy that you really have to consider. A good surgery performed on the wrong patient is a bad surgery. And I think that, that nowhere else in colorectal surgery is that as true as it is for rectal prolapse surgery. Um, with that in mind, 
Um, I, you know, I would just caution anyone out there who maybe doesn't do colorectal surgery as a primary part of your practice. If you're considering using the robot to do a rectal prolapse repair, please make sure you've really gone through these evaluations thoroughly and make sure that you're comfortable with the workup of the patient and make sure that uh, all the decision-making is sound before you get to the OR. With that being said, I think the robot is really a terrific platform for pelvic surgery in general, and nowhere else is it as helpful as with rectal prolapse surgery. Um, it is really ideally suited for this operation. You're dealing with a single quadrant operation. Uh, you can get it done with only a few inexpensive uh, instruments. You do not have the added expense of vessel sealers or staplers or all these things that really drive up the cost of, uh, of robotics and the disposables. Um, you have wristed movement that allows you to get over that pelvic brim and get down into the deep pelvis and suture much more easily than you can with straight stick laparoscopy. It makes it easy. It makes it precise. And it even makes it fun. And I think there's many of us who are not quite as skilled as uh, at laparoscopic suturing as Peter West Marcello is and really don't have a whole lot of fun when we're trying to do that in the deep pelvis. Um, so it really can really make so many aspects of this operation so much better. Um, you know, the word of caution here is I think a lot of people think of rectal prolapse surgery as sort of like the beginner's operation for robotics. And it's what a lot of colorectal surgeons use as their stepping stone into robotics. It's important to point out that, you know, these planes can be quite tricky. Um, when you have a very attenuated, uh, mesorectum and the, the, there's no fat, you don't know what the planes are. It can be really hard to find the right place to do your dissection. Um, you're also in the deep pelvis. And because these patients are very often super skinny, all of your critical structures are going to be just a very small hand stroke away. And you're just one wrong move away from, you know, a real big problem uh, if you're not careful and if you have a, a wayward movement. So it really needs to be given the respect that any deep pelvis surgery really needs to have, no matter what your technique is. Hey, Dave, why don't you tell us, wait, what is your go-to um, like repair? What do you like to do and how you do it? Yeah, so I'd say uh, my go-to repair in the vast majority of, uh, of uh, cases is a robotic suture rectopexy. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about history, but where we are right now in 2022, I think that offers the best um, balance in terms of uh, relatively high success rate, relatively low recurrence, and relatively low morbidity. Um, and plus, it really doesn't burn any bridges for other types of repairs if you recur. You could always throw mesh in in the future. You could always do an anterior repair. It really doesn't burn any bridges. Um, with the robotics, you know, there's relatively few contraindications in terms of patient selection. I'd say, you know, maybe a very hostile abdomen might make you want to stay out of the abdomen in general. But, you know, we've do, done this on elderly patients, patients with COPD. I mean, really, there's not a, a whole lot of medical absolute contraindications like we used to think of abdominal approaches. Um, in terms of technique, uh, you know, I'll just give you a, a quick rundown of the way I do it. Um, I use four eight millimeter trocars. There's no reason to use a 12 in this operation. So there's no fascial incisions. Um, I, pay, I place them pretty much straight across the, the, um, the abdomen, just above the level of the umbilicus. Um, I also use a five millimeter assist port in the right upper quadrant. Uh, I begin the dissection medial to lateral, just like you would for an LAR, except I start a little bit lower than I would for an LAR, kind of at the level of the sacral promontory, because you really don't need to dissect out the pedicle with this or get anywhere near the nerve roots of the hypogastric if you can avoid it. 
Um, and then I find the avascular TME plane, and then I begin a full posterior mobilization all the way down to the pelvic floor. And I think that's really critical here. Um, I think I want to get, I want to see the levator muscles go into the top of the anal rectal ring. That's how I know I'm at the pelvic floor. Um, and uh, I think many of these patients have very tortuous rectums below the peritoneal reflection. If you don't fully mobilize it posteriorly, when you then try to reduce and pull up, I think a lot of times you're going to leave some prolapse behind and you're not going to actually fully straighten the rectum like you think you are. Um, I'll try to preserve both neurovascular pedicles if I can, but sometimes when you reduce the rectum, you'll find that there's some tension on the right side. Um, so taking that pedicle can help you do a full resection. Um, I'll always leave it on the left though. I, I try to never, ever take both of the, of the pedicles. Uh, then I fully reduce the rectum. And before I put my sutures in, I'll confirm that I'm fully reduced by doing a digital exam. And I have that simultaneous view into the pelvis where I want to see the tip of my finger coming into the uh, pelvic floor um, from the abdominal view. That's how I know that I'm fully straight. Um, and then I put my sutures in. I use 2-O-Ethabond. Um, I do three sutures right next to each other. Uh, I take bites of the periosteum of the sacrum right at the sacral promontory. And then I take a nice seromuscular bite of the right lateral wall of the rectum. Um, why do I do three? Well, it allows me to do at least one. So I know I've got one stitch where I want it. And then I'll let the fellow uh, or the resident put one or two stitches um, to get a little practice. But at least I know that at least there's one good strong stitch in there. Um, finally, once I've done the pexy, then I always, always do a flex sig. Um, and I go above the level of the pexy and I want to make sure um, that number one, I haven't sutured the rectum closed or narrowed the rectum significantly. And then I also think, you know, some people are like, well, why would you do that? Aren't you afraid you're going to tear your sutures out? Well, yeah, if, if the scope tears a stitch out, I'd rather know about it then so I could fix it. Um, it, it's a little bit like a leak test for me where I want to make sure that I've actually gotten good bites to make sure that the, that the pexy will hold a little bit of tension from the scope. Um, so I always do that. I keep everyone overnight. I take out their Foley at midnight. I put them on daily Miralax the next day. And then um, almost everyone goes home the next day uh, as long as they are able to avoid. Amazing. Uh, Thank you, Dave. I think that's good. Any other point, I will agree that um, endoscopy, I think, is great. It's weird when you look in, you see the rotation of the rectum with your stitches on one side. It looks almost like an iris, but the scope goes through. Yeah. Scope goes through. Test what goes through if the scope goes through. Poop. There you go. Perfect. Love it. So our uh, patient, if we come back to our case, uh, did undergo a laparoscopic suture rectopexy a few months ago, uh, and she is recovering well and no recurrences to date. So happy end to the story. Awesome. Um, John, I remember you did a ventral mesh rectopexy last year for one of your cases. Can you kind of share with us why and when you choose to do this? Yeah, I did. And, um, you know, I did a few of these in fellowship. Uh, I think it is a very nice surgery. Um, uh, you know, in that specific case, this patient had a very long segment, full thickness, rectal prolapse, long-term issue managing constipation. You know, in my training, we talked a lot about how suture rectopexy could actually worsen, uh, constipation. You know, I like the anterior approach. So you're not worried about injury to the pelvic nerves as you do with a team in posterior dissection. Um, and then, you know, my experience is we use a soft, uh, polypropylene mesh, uh, usually two of sort of like what Dave said, test any thoughts. Yeah, it shouldn't really be an issue if you only mobilize one side and leave the lateral stalks, as we kind of talked about before. A lot of the literature um, was old when full division of both lateral stalks was a standard procedure. The technique, I think, now has evolved to where the majority mobilize, as we kind of discussed, only on the right side and don't divide um, the lateral stalks completely. 
Dave, um, curious to get your thoughts because I know you've had several heated debates during journal clubs on this. Your thoughts on sigmoid resection with suture rectopexy? Yeah, sure. You know, I've done that a handful of times. Um, honestly, I've started losing enthusiasm for it uh, recently. Um, you know, classically, the teaching is that you offer it to patients with severe, long-standing constipation, um, and if you do the pro, the pexy alone, uh, you'll worsen their constipation and they'll be miserable. So you should do a resection rectopexy, and that's still, I think, the classic board's answer. Uh, you know. In the few cases that I've actually done that, I, I found intraop that their entire colon is extremely redundant, not just the sigmoid colon. So it kind of feels to me like you're just throwing a little newspaper down over the problem and leaving this very, very long redundant colon. And like, how much of an impact are you really having? And you know, you're you're just introducing potential morbidity there, um, and and maybe getting in the way of your standard a way of doing a good suture rectopexy. Um, now, I've actually had really good success lately by not doing a resection rectopexy, but um, really trying hard to fix their constipation medically. There's so many great IBSC medications out there now that our GI colleagues have more experience than I do. So I send them to our motility experts, try them on Amatiza, Linzess, any of those kinds of drugs. And sometimes they can get great response. And then you can do your suture rectopexy without a resection. And, um, you know, so far I've had, I've had pretty good results with that. Yeah. And I'll just lay a few comments here that, that I do think if you have somebody who's got very disabling constipation, and they have a good anal sphincter, then that's the group that I think in their otherwise fit could tolerate a leak. That's the group that I still think may get benefit from resection rectopexy. I think Tess brought out the important points is that we have modified our mobilization now from before. In the old days, you stripped the rectum all the way down to the anus on both sides before you did the pexy and they got the constipation. We now, most of us just mobilize on one side and not both. But if I have a woman who's got really bad constipation, who has a good muscle, then I will do this. And for me, I think um, what, I, what I've learned is um, I'll do the resection. But before I do the anastomosis, I'll actually lay the stitches in the sacrum, three of them. You know, I, think I agree with Dave, 2-O-Ethamon and an SH, uh, good bites. Then I'll do the anastomosis and then I'll do the pexy afterwards. So I'm not pushing the anastomosis to the side to get the bites into the sacrum lay the stitches in. And I think those cases are best with, I think, a small fan and steel, uh, if I'm thinking about it, because I don't want to compromise. And, and so lay the stitches before you do the anastomosis, do the anastomosis, then do the pexy, and you can do the nice Frickman-Goldberg procedure. Yeah, 100%. A resection rectopexy for me, even though I love the robotic rectopexies, I do them open through a fan and steel. It's you know, just a lot easier all right, I got one last pop quiz for you guys. Okay, so there are, we've talked about doing suture rectopexy and a mesh, you know, rectopexy called a Ripstein. Is there another type of mesh that can be used uh, or material that can be used for rectopexy? And what is that procedure called? And what is the material? John, Dave. So I can uh, I can remember uh, Milsom using Gore-Tex. Yeah. No, I'm uh, talking about an old, old school something. It would actually go away in a little while. Tess, Tess, what do you think? Um, you can use a Ivalon sponge yes. and it's a, a posterior procedure called the Wells procedure. Yeah. Uh, popularized in Great Britain. I this again, I love a little bit of the classics. And so a Wells rectopexy was using sponge, uh, the sponge versus a piece of mesh putting posterior. 
So it's like a modified Ripstein using an Ivalon sponge, a Wells Rectopexy. Wow, love it. And that is why it's the wired world of rectal prolapse. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this session on clinical challenges of surgery. So let's wrap it up, Leahy team. Uh, Tess, you know the deal, you're up. All right, Tess's teaching points. Save the rectum if you can, rectopexy first. And then for short segment, full thickness or mucosal prolapse is when I would consider doing a Delorme. Nice, Peter. All right, it's up to me for Marcel's must knows. Well, first always trust, but verify rule one. But for prolapse, it's the symptom and not the disease. You got to treat the underlying constipation. Second thing, you know, the white coat pockets, empty your pocket before you look at them on the toilet. And then taking that all together, tailor the procedure to the patient, the sphincter, and the degree of constipation. Love it. And before I get in there, I'm going to give a shout out to our, our own Dr. Kleiman. Dave, do's and don'ts. Thanks. So, uh, you know, the first is this mantra of uh, uh, a good surgery on the wrong patient is a bad surgery. Um, so I think really don't, don't be focused so much on the tool and not what you're doing and who you're doing it on. Um, Always mobilize the rectum all the way to the pelvic floor posteriorly. Um, always preserve at least one of the neurovascular stalks, preferably both, unless it's really limiting you. Um, prepare yourself and your team for the possibility of some pretty significant bleeding. Just remember, you are doing deep pelvis surgery after all. It's not just a rectopexy. You're in the deep pelvis. There's really bloody structures not far away. So be prepared and make sure your team's prepared for it. Um, logistically streamline your instrument tray, minimize the costs, minimize what kind of instruments are being opened for you. That'll keep your administrators happy and keep the overall cost of the operation down and help justify, uh, the use of the robot. Um, always have a flexible sigmoidoscope available in the OR 100% of the time. Uh, do your flex sig at the end of the PEXI just to make sure you're happy with the lumen. And then don't do a robotic surgery in the pelvis. If you're not properly trained to perform it, don't use this as a crutch to do something that you're not really um, prepared for managing perioperatively, both before and after your operation. Awesome. John, you want to give us yours? Yeah, awesome. So Abelson's approach. Uh, so Altmeyer, really only for those who are unfit to undergo general anesthesia in this day and age. Um, and then suture rectopexy really probably should be the first approach and mesh is really just, uh, just for failures. All right, John, who gets, who then, who gets an Altmeyer? What's the, what's a good patient to, for that? Two conditions, two states. Yeah. So someone who you don't want to do general anesthesia. Yeah. Uh, How about elderly demented, uh, patient in a nursing home. Yes. All right. Tess, is there anybody in group who needs an Altmeyer? What, what state does the prolapse have to be in where you really, that's your only option? Uh, so strangulated uh, yeah. where you have to do it emergently. All right. Awesome. Well-trained Leahy grad. All right. So with that, we're, we're going to wrap up our third session. Uh, so again, if you like diving into the weeds a little bit, consider joining us on our Sunday evenings for our colorectal surgery virtual education series. Uh, and I am excited to announce that we're going to be partnering with Behind the Knife for that series as well. Uh, and you can check out our, our show notes for some details. So we're going to see you again in July when we're going to have a journal club review on the use of biologics and the timing of ileocolic resection in Crohn's disease. If you enjoyed the session, please take a minute or two out of your hectic day to leave us a review. And as Behind the Knife always says, until next time, dominate the day. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.